Northern New York Community Podcasts, stories from the heart of our community. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Northern New York Community Podcast. I'm your host, Max Del Signor. Several communities, nonprofit organizations, and higher education institutions have been touched by the generosity of John and Mary Jo Deans. Their philanthropy has been embedded through different elements of the region, arts, history, education, human services, and beyond. On this podcast, we explore their experiences in giving and what they've learned. We'll also take a deep look at their affinity for the North Country and the future of the region. But before we start our conversation, we must take a minute to thank our supporters of the podcast, WPBS and the Northern New York Community Foundation. They're responsible for the creation and production of these great stories from the heart of our community. Head over to WPBSTV.org to see the latest from WPBS and NNYCF.org to learn more about the Community Foundation's recent work. Now, let's bring in John and Mary Jo Deans into the podcast. It's great having you both here. Oh, good morning. Thank you very much. Now, you are not natives of the North Country, but you've made this area your home. What's the best part about living in this community? Well, I actually probably would be referred to as a native of the North Country. Malone, uh, New born York. In, so. Born in Malone, raised on a family farm. Uh, but we've been here in this area of the North Country, it's so huge, but this particular area of the North Country, we've been here since uh, 1967. What do you think has been the, the thing you appreciate the most about settling here, raising your family, raising your children, and, and really having two great careers in living here in the North Country? could be the kindness of the yeah. people here. They're very welcoming and accepting. The summer weather is gorgeous and we are very grateful for that. And I think we had the opportunity, uh, each of us, uh, w working with organizations that we really could uh, truly identify with and become committed to. And both organizations were one, I would say, where working was more of a calling uh, than it was um, certainly in probably in many instances, but with the college and Mary Jo with her work with the particularly North Country Children's Clinic, both of those oftentimes I think we probably felt like we were somewhat like missionaries and that mm -hmm. of course always entails quite a, a commitment and quite a bit of reward from that kind of work. John, you mentioned growing up in, in Malone on a family farm. A neat part of your story growing up is the fact that your education really began in a one-room schoolhouse right. for eight grades, right. or eight years, I guess you could say, and with one teacher. Tell us a little bit about that kind of, and what you recall being in a one-room schoolhouse, one teacher, eight years. Well, it was, it turned out to be actually an extraordinarily positive experience. I mean, that, because the teacher, for one, Mrs. Fitzsimmons, uh, was, uh, was, was just excellent. She was quite a disciplinarian, uh, but on the other hand, she was one who opened the world uh, to us. Here we were in a rural area of upstate New York, and uh, this many years ago, uh, every, every noon hour, uh, on would come the radio, and we would listen to the world news. And of course, uh, I remember hearing many accounts of, at that time, the war in Korea, and Porkchop Hill, and those things stay with you for a lifetime. Uh, but she was also just extremely interested in that which went, went on around us, uh, in, including, in this case, uh, bringing the world to us. And this was prior to the time that any of us had TV. 
So it was a great experience. And there were, yes, we had a maximum size in that eight grades of 13 students. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, I can't say that our science experiences were very sophisticated, but by the time I went to the high school in Malone, uh, my ninth grade, believe it or not, was largely review. And John got measles, mumps, chicken pox, some, all in my first all year in of his high first school. year of high school. <laughs> so you, you built your immune system pretty quickly <laughs> once you got to ninth yes. grade. Yes. Some of the first examples of philanthropy that you shared, John, were one of them in particular was ringing the bell for the Salvation Army at Christmas time. What other memories do you recall from your childhood, or examples of philanthropy that you noticed from your parents? Well, I think the one thing that I guess, in retrospect, I learned fairly early is that philanthropy comes in many forms. And, you know, we often think of it as uh, someone uh, who's, you know, been uh, quite successful, uh, being very generous and leaving large amounts of money. But philanthropy, as I learned it uh, on the farm, also meant that it really entailed the interconnectedness of people. You know, we think of farmers oftentimes as rugged individualists, but there are also people who truly understand the need uh, to be ready to support uh, a neighbor. And I saw a lot of that uh, as I was growing up. Uh, I saw uh, the biggest example probably was when we lost our uh, barn to a fire. Uh, and uh, when I was just a teenager at that point, and neighbors came from all around. And we literally had a barn raising that took place. And uh, so I, you know, it, it taught me that uh, I think early on I, I saw numerous examples of, you know, the old definition of philanthropy as, uh, you know, love of humanity, people helping people, the interconnectedness of, uh, of the world. So I think that, and then the, the one I remember more conventional maybe form of uh, philanthropy, uh, a modest form, but was, uh, yeah, I remember going with my father every year around the holiday time, and he would give each one of us money, and we would approach the uh, the red kettle, and for the Salvation Army, and uh, and it taught me that uh, you know he realized uh, because we weren't certainly weren't affluent, uh, and our donation, our gift, if you will, wasn't affluent, but it it kind of taught me the notion that uh, you know you give you give. Everyone needs to give back in some manner, and uh, so that was uh, that was there was a couple ways that I think that I learned a little bit about philanthropy and why it is so uh, important for all of us. Mary Jo, you grew up in a suburb of the city of Poughkeepsie, one of nine children in an Italian family. Plenty of sacrifice and sharing, I would imagine. <laughs> what was it like having that many siblings? Sharing is a good theme for that. Uh, nobody had a great sense of ownership. We shared clothing and food and friends and meals. Uh, we rarely had a meal that someone else wasn't invited. Last minute, usually, my poor mother. My father was very generous to his fellow musicians. Not sure if you mentioned, but he was a musician, owned a music store in Poughkeepsie. And we often had, I think you would call them homeless musicians now, that he would allow to come and live with us. They shared meals, they helped cook meals. They were all very unusual characters. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember them and my sisters and brothers and I tell stories about them. Was there a stronger appreciation for music and the arts, not only because of your father's profession, but you've got all these eclectic individuals coming into your home and have 
all these different genres of music that they're interested in. Do, do you feel like that's where your fondness kind of grew? Absolutely. I, I just love musicians and I feel so good with the concerts on the waterfront, giving them a job. They're, they're such generous, interesting people. Were there other examples too, same question I asked John, but just other examples of giving back that your parents did that struck you or were compelling to you that you knew was a really good example and something you may want to emulate as you got older? I think a lot of our charity was with people we knew and our relatives and not so much organizations, although I do remember my mother going around collecting for American Heart uh, or cancer, but generally it was our circle and you just shared what you had. So you both, you both met at SUNY Albany. We did. Can, can you share the story about how you met? We met in the library. <laughs> oh, the library? We're going to skip to the library, I guess. Okay. <laughs> it, we actually met at an establishment where they serve adult beverages. <laughs> but then he did seek me out in the library. It was a rainy day, and I was quite bedraggled, but he stuck with me anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then we just started dating. Um, I was 17. We went to college. Both of us are early. John skipped a couple of classes, and I went to school early. I was 17, and you were a sophomore, and you were just 18, right. yes. See, in the one-room school, it was very easy because if you were the only one in the grade, and the teacher thought, you're ready for third grade, but you're only in first, so you moved through first and maybe you got moved to third. And, uh, mm -hmm. and you can bet he listened when the third graders were doing their lesson. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes, we were young, yeah. but compatible. Yeah. So, and, and the focus was education, social sciences, primarily as you were finishing up at SUNY Albany, correct? We were very yeah. serious about yeah. our schoolwork, right. both of us. We were both good students. Yeah. Why did you feel education was so important or what the time compelled you to say, this, this is really where I feel the most passion and interest. I was the first <clears throat> in my family to go to college, very proud of it. Perhaps I thought it was um, a way out of the crazy house that I lived in, <laughs> uh, although I always loved being there. And John, I, you were serious too. I think I, I think I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. I wasn't sure where that would be, and I think the inspiration for that, I think, came from Mrs. Fitzsimmons that molded my life in many ways for uh, eight grades. And um, so that it wasn't, uh, I didn't know that I would become a teacher uh, in a community college. And uh, because again, they, they weren't around at that point in time when I was going through uh, high school, they were just coming into their own as institutions of higher education when I was uh, in college. But following uh, graduation and the time that you know, I finished my master's degree, it was time to start looking for work. And uh, I, I did indeed um, interview for a position in a uh, high school in the Rochester area, and in Fortune was offered the job that day. So I said, well, that's grand. But I also had this interview at this place called Jefferson Community College mm -hmm. in uh, Watertown, New York, and we drove up here. And I remember as vividly today as when we drove down the long drive, the beautiful trees, uh, and then all of a sudden out is what at that point in time 
was an outstanding campus. Many community colleges were in old factories, uh, old buildings that might have been educational facilities, K through 12. But here was this small but set of five beautifully built uh, buildings and, uh, and the people I met immediately uh, inspired me. One of them was the, the first person I had as a, uh, as a boss, was a fellow by the name of John Vandewater. And the Vandewaters uh, were them, themselves very committed to education. And, uh, and John loved, uh, even though he was a French teacher, he, he loved uh, the world, he loved talking about global events, and uh, he really uh, was an inspiration for me. How did you know to apply to Jefferson Community College, or how, how did the opportunity come about? Well, at that point in time, it was a, it was, it was a, a much less sophisticated process in terms of the advertising. Uh, and what happened is I had uh, an advisor at SUNY Albany who was very interested in this phenomenon of community colleges. And uh, he would point out to us occasionally where there were positions open. And that's how I really heard about the position at uh, Jefferson. And at that point in 1967, it was a grand time for community college. They were beginning to really take off. And um, I really, after having the offer from Jefferson, was able to add offers from some others in New York State. But uh, there was something about uh, Jefferson Community College that said to me, this is where I'd, I'd like to be. Didn't ever envision that we would be there for 35 plus years, but uh, because everyone sort of thought, well, we'll start, you know, where we're maybe at a community college and we'll move on. Well, we discovered there was real college right there. And I really enjoyed the fact that I was working with people, many of whom were, uh, I guess as I was, just had this strong commitment to, to taking education to many people who never otherwise would have had that opportunity. My first class that I went to in the schedule in the fall of 1967 was an evening course uh, in American history, and I literally was the youngest person in the room. Oh, wow. Because at that point in time, continuing ed was primarily older working people. And uh, that was quite an experience, uh, in addition to the fact that I was all done in an hour, and I had the class was an hour and a half. Well, that happened, I guess, that one time in my career. And after that, I'm sure the students would have said, why doesn't he just stop? <laughs> but, uh, well, and as that's happening, Mary Jo, you transitioned to become an educator at North Junior in, in Watertown. What was that experience like to kind of be following that same path in education together? Well, I had worked at the Albany Home for Children while I was in college. So I was moving in a direction of that time they referred to those kids as emotionally disturbed children. So when I got to Watertown, there was a special class at North Junior for children who were troubled, who were potential dropouts. And so they gathered all those children and they were my class. I don't, I have no idea if they do jobs like this anymore. But I would communicate with the teachers and see what the kids had to do and help them with it. And But we also had a class of our own and I would enrich them or do what I thought I, as a 25 year old girl at that time, what I thought would enrich them. So we did Fiddler on the Roof. We did plays. We did, I played them Broadway shows. We met one of these fellows on the golf course, a successful guy on the golf course later on, and he remembered that effort really? with enjoyment, I think. So that was my job at North Junior, which I enjoyed a great deal until I 
became pregnant with my, our first child, and at that time women did not work when they were pregnant. I worked until probably November, which was late. So then I was home with children for quite a while until I decided to go back, and this time I decided to go back into nursing. What, why nursing? I was always good at sciences. I enjoyed it. I used to read the American Journal of Nursing. My mother was an RN, so we always had that magazine, and uh, I read it cover to cover. Just fascinated with that idea of helping, curing, helping to cure. So I went back at JCC. John was academic dean at that yeah, point, yeah. I believe. So that was uh, two years. I didn't, because I had already had a bachelor's from SUNY Albany, I didn't have to take all the courses. But the nursing courses were very intense. It's interesting that when you switch fields, you're taking courses at JCC, John is there, you know, beginning his progression through the college. So the affinity for the institution just, I think, seems to like continue to build, I would imagine, oh, over yes. time. I mean, you're, you're both there almost every day at that point in your lives. Mm -hmm. Um, how, did, how did the college start to change in, in that point, either as, you know, as a student and an adult learner technically at this stage, and then as academic dean, somebody who was kind of there at the beginning, what were some of the observations or things that you both noticed about how the college was changing? Certainly the one thing that uh, I saw over the years was the dramatic growth of, uh, of the college. And much of that occurred as a result of that decision in 1984 to reactivate the 10th Mountain Division and find it a home here at what would become a new Fort Drum. The college changed, of course, the whole North Country community changed, uh, I might say, to, to, to the better in virtually every way by bringing a lot of uh, new ideas and diversity and new, new people to the area. And for the college, uh, what I al always saw as a major benefit was the fact that the just the growth in numbers of people and the diversity of the population and of their interests as far as majors were concerned, it allowed us to grow and expand our, our offerings and really better serve the whole community as a result. So that was probably the, the biggest change that occurred and it's one that, that still impacts the college to this day. So Fort Drum and the college early on, we became a major partner in any effort that took place to try to Im improve, address any issues that might arise and try to improve the ways that we could serve the North Country. Samaritan Medical Center certainly did the same as uh, the fact that there was you know, no, no school. Uh, Indian River and Carthage and those two in particular, even Sackets Harbor has a number of uh, you know, military related students, but those two had uh, the lion's share of students uh, who were military related. And um, the North Country did an amazing job of addressing the fact that there would be no education offered on drum itself, no, no uh, military schools, if you will, on uh, drum. But I think for the, it just was, again, it strengthened all of our institutions in the North Country that things went that way. The fact that so many members of the uh, military community live in the community and not on the installation, all those kind of things, I think, turned out to benefit both for Drum and the community around it. So in 1992, you become president of Jefferson Community College. Right. What do you remember was your focus at that time being the president of a 
higher education institution? Well, one of the one of the things I never dreamed would happen, but it's certain I knew that by 1992 the time had come. The college was starved for space. We were starved for facilities, if you will. And uh, so almost immediately we began formulating what became our first ever capital campaign. And that was quite an effort because uh, we knew we needed additional buildings. Uh, we knew that they would all have to be equipped and we knew that the equipping them would not be uh, part of money that we might be able to derive from the state or support from our local sponsor, both of which were very, very supportive, but it was going to take beyond that to bring the technology that was needed to those facilities, et cetera. So we undertook the notion of a capital campaign. Uh, we were told, uh, I remember being, being told, uh, particularly by people who certainly sh should have known or didn't know or thought they knew that, well, you know, you're a public institution you won't be able to raise much money. The public just won't do that. And uh, we were told that no, a million dollars will be uh, beyond. Now this was in the you know early in early 1990s would be beyond what you could do. Well, it turns out ultimately we raised over two million dollars, and the community was overwhelmingly generous. Why do you think that was? Well, you know, I we had an individual. Uh, we worked with a consultant who did the hundred or so interviews in the community, and he came back to us. And uh, I know that he met with the, I met with him and the some of the trustees, and he wanted to give us the findings. What what did he realize, What did he find? And he said two things that always stuck in my mind. He said, you know. First of all, you folks here have been really successful over the years, and you've had different leadership, but nobody's gone to jail. Well, I thought, that's quite an endorsement. <laughs> and then he kind of laughed, and he said, well, you know, seriously, he said, I'm telling you that you really have never had anything crop up that would leave the public with a negative attitude. Frankly, he said, and this, this really resonated, he said, frankly, this community has a love affair with this college. And I think he knew what he was talking about because as we went out to try to raise the money, of course it was a construction activity, so we were able to get people up and walking across the, you know, the girders of some of the 2B buildings, uh, and uh, the community responded enthusiastically. And it, that engaged us with the community because, as you know, we had to put teams of people together who would go out and work with us. You can't do it alone. So that was really quite a, that was, that was something that, if you'd asked me 10 years earlier, would that be on the agenda of a community college president? No. But now, of course, it's something that has to happen periodically. Uh, as you realize, you, you, know, you need partners. And it really worked amazingly well. And I think for a lot of people, uh, you know, we opened the doors of the college. The, the classrooms were, you know, names appear there still of the people who donated the, the dollars that would equip that classroom and buildings and so on and uh, the theater. We just discovered that there's an amazing generosity here in, uh, in this area of the North Country. Of all the, the projects <clears throat> and the expansion that took place at that time, and it, you know, even beyond capital, there was expansion of the academic programs themselves, the curriculum, yep. creation of the Center for Community Studies, yes. to have that as a community assessment tool. As you reflect on all of this, was there one particular project or effort that you are most proud of in your time as president? 
I think probably I would have to say the Center for Community Studies. I had been here for a number of years, and a lot of times I, I had heard from people out in the community that, you know, we've got issues in this community that we need to try to address, but there's no forum for it. And, uh, or, or again, we're going to apply for a not-for-profit, and we're going to apply for a grant, but it requires all this data that we don't have that kind of information. So fortunately what occurred is um, I had heard that, it was in my mind, and I had the good fortune to receive the uh, Shapiro Award, and I think it was 19, 1999, I believe it was. So I utilized, I suppose you could say, I used that forum that night as at the award dinner to talk a little bit about what I thought the college might be able to do mm -hmm. if there were partners in the community who would work with it. And that was to create a place where people could come together, discuss issues, we could do analysis, we could do polling, we could, we could get a good read of what the you know, community thought. And interestingly enough, after that appeared in the media, following the dinner, uh, the phone began to ring and including people that at that point were associated with the Northern York Community Foundation saying, how can we help? We'd like to join an effort. We think that's an important initiative. And interestingly enough, uh, JCC, I think I'm s still safe in saying, is really the only community college in the state that has such a activity. And, um, and it, it's, had, it's had support from the community financially. The college provides support and it's just strong uh, and now we're looking at coming up on a major anniversary here of the number of years that this annual survey of what used to be we'd say the community meeting jefferson county but now it's jefferson county lewis County's involved st lawrence County's involved and they all appreciate the objectivity of the data that is gathered through that. And of course, it engages students uh, as well as professors from the college. So that, that I was always quite enthused about for a while. We would have a, a major speaker on a major theme or issue facing the country. And that's a part that we need to build back into it. But again, it's just a question of having the, the staffing and the dollars to do that speaker series. You had mentioned going back and thinking about those campaigns, people having names on certain spaces because of their generosity. Two years ago, your name appears in the Collaborative Learning Center. What was that moment like when you received the news that your name was going to be on what is now one of the newest buildings on that campus? Well, it was, uh, <laughs> it was humbling. It was gratifying, and I'm, you know, it's, it's something that I'm just appreciative that the college was willing to do. And I, you know, I, I think that, uh, as I said to Carol McCoy when she told me about what was going to happen, Carol was the president at that point, and uh, I said, do you know, if, if, I had, if I had had to try to dream up <laughs> a building and what went on within it, uh, nothing could be more pleasing to me than what you have done with this building. Uh, you know, the library, uh, that as I pointed out, that's where we met in the library, <laughs> yes. but the fact that the library is housed there, the fact that the, the teaching that takes place there is collaborative learning, uh, I think is something that's extraordinarily important. And uh, so we're just generally uh, appreciative and, uh, and the support of local uh, businesses and so on that helped fund that effort and, uh, and fund uh, a scholarship that is established and hopefully will serve students for years to come. I've had an opportunity to meet with several of the recipients 
of the uh, dean's legacy scholarship, uh, and uh, it's, it's it's a joy each time you meet one of them because you realize that the college is really helping build community because it's giving strength and skills and education. Uh, in some instances to folks who just couldn't get far enough away to be able to get away to do it, they do it here. Uh, others do it here by choice and then go on and as we know, become immensely successful educationally across the state and country. And hopefully some of them stay here. <laughs> That's right. That's all part of the hope or the plan as well. Yep. Mary Jo, you, when you transitioned to nursing, part of the career as you kind of made that transition was being affiliated and working with the North Country Children's Clinic for 15 years. In that capacity and in that role, what did you learn about the community that maybe you had not witnessed or seen before as an educator? I think I did not know that there were pockets of poverty to the extent that there are in Watertown. And I learned from the people, sometimes they were hopeless, but bringing back JCC, that was always a, a frequent aspiration of many of the young women that I met, that they might go to JCC and start their climb upward. And of course, I was more than happy to encourage that. We talked a lot about nutrition, and at that time, maybe people are more conscious of it now, but there was a, abysmal knowledge of basic nutrition and childcare. I worked especially with very young mothers who had not profited from the kind of mother I had and, and needed to be taught how to mother and fathers who were stern and needed to be uh, mellowed a bit. So I did enjoy that aspect of my career. I worked at Samaritan before that, so I had a nursing background in pediatrics and uh, newborn intensive care nursery. So it was an easy goal to try to prevent premature births. I'll ask this question yeah. for both of you. Why do you feel education is so important to this community's future? I would go beyond it. I say education is important probably to every community's future, but I think particularly for a community that has a determination to remain strong or to become stronger and, and people within it have that same feeling. If I use my own life as an example, if I hadn't had good educators and good education, uh, I never would have had the doors open for the kind of opportunities that I've had. So I think education remains the best single investment that any community can make. Uh, I believe that and I think probably have always believed it and therefore it never was difficult for me to try to make a case whether it was to members of a board of legislators or to try to take the case to an individual, a private individual or a company that might be willing to support the college. It was never a, a hard job for me to say this is the best single investment that you can make because you're, we're, you know, it's the only way you strengthen the community and keep it strong is by keeping its citizenry able to uh, open doors and, and, and take new steps. And that is something I think education provides. And we see that a lot, I think, for some of the uh, major philanthropic organizations across the country, uh, you know, recognizing that as, as we try to confront <clears throat> what I think is the single greatest challenge this country faces at this point, which is the inequality in income, the distribution of wealth, if you will, in the country, you see a number of people stepping forward and saying, you know what, education is that which will potentially open doors and give opportunity to help address that. I think You're talking about the college. When you asked earlier, has the college been uh, an important part of both of our lives? 
it, it occurred to me is not only did I go to the Jefferson, but Mary Jo did for a nursing degree, and our three children all attended. And I think one of them even had a, a doll named Jefferson. I was thinking of that too. <laughs> yes, Jennifer, we asked her what she was going to name her new it was a stuffed animal yeah. or something, and she said Jefferson Community College, and she did name it Jefferson. She'd been listening yes. listening intently, probably, yes. to what Mom Jefferson and Dad were Jefferson Community sharing. College was a very big part of our lives. And you know, children do what you do, yep. not what you talk about, not what you teach. And I think ours saw the example that both of us were so involved. I can remember forcing my son to clean up a playground and volunteering him shamelessly to uh, change the storm window windows on an older couple's house and he wasn't very happy about it when he was speaking to us but everyone would say what a gracious boy what a lovely boy because when he did the work he did it with a big smile and he carries that on to this day why was that important to you to make sure your children had those values of giving to others in need oh because it was one of our important values that we just unquestioned in our house yeah i think you just the, the idea of you know, some people use the term giving back, but I, I think just the idea of being, doing what you can do uh, to help build your community. I've been blessed with a number of opportunities, and one of them was actually to, to serve as mayor in the village of Sackets Harbor. I'll always regard that probably as the second biggest opportunity I had after uh, JCC because it was a, an opportunity to work with people. It was an opportunity to help the community define a vision for itself, and I think sometimes Sometimes uh, we forget that you know communities are merely collections of individuals, and you you need a, you need a plan, you need a vision, you need you need something to strive for. Of course, obviously, then it didn't take me long to figure out, and others agreed. I mean, that history is what you know will carry Sackets Harbor forward. You know, we, we used to say we'll build our future on our past, and I think that when we keep our eye on that prize, it keeps the community focused, and we realize uh, our connection with the past and gives the community an identity and certainly a sense of pride. Do you think local history is sometimes an element of a community that gets forgotten but would be equally important to either endorse or promote to make the quality of life in that community better? Oh I think so. You know, it's, a, it's part of knowing who we are. If it's important for an individual, it's certainly important for a collection of individuals. And you know, they may not agree in every specific point, but at least you have some kind of, uh, there's, a, there's something that connects you together. And I think we, we see that in, you know, communities that are, uh, well, in Sackets, for example, you know, not every community may care about historic preservation. But that has become now in Sackets Harbor, we've kind of built the community's future around it. it. It's something that you get pretty much unanimity of agreement on, that it's important that we not knock down buildings, that we try to save them, because it's part of who we are. And, and what we hope to, that the thousands of tourists who come annually to visit and hear about the War of 1812. And uh, so it's very much a present day topic in Sackets Harbor. Yes, I was, wish it wasn't so hard to preserve buildings. It, the process is so difficult to get grants and to find the funds. In the meanwhile, buildings like the Old Stone Hospital just are deteriorating at an alarming rate. You both served your community in other capacities. We've touched on it a, a little bit. How did you choose, or what's the process of actually choosing where to devote your time and energy or resources? 
Well, I think I think sometimes it may be a conscious decision on your part. Other times it may be just it's, it's something that you kind of evolve toward. Uh, certainly the involvement that we had, it's not as intense at the moment because we're not as, as you know, as connected. We, we spend our winters away. And uh, But when, uh, when Fort Drum expanded, it was important, I thought, given my role at the college, to be as involved as we could with that. Well, we ended up getting more involved than we ever imagined. Uh, I got involved with the uh, AUSA chapter and, and ended up as uh, president of the chapter and then got engaged with FDRLO. And we hosted meetings of both AUSA and then later FDRLO meetings at the college. And again, it was the bringing people together. It enriched us. We, we took more from it, if you will, than we gave in terms of effort because we learned a lot that we knew very little about and we met new people and uh, that's always stimulating. Can you share a little bit about serving as chairman of Fort Drum Regional, uh, Fort Drum Regional Liaison Organization? One of the things I know the organization focuses on is just general awareness about the military and the Fort Drum element in a community. What were some of the things that are key takeaways from being a part of that experience? Well, FDRLO, as we knew it, and it's still its official name now called Drum Advocate, and it, it, you're right, it serves that purpose. Uh, we were the institution, uh, if you will, that kind of led the the fight uh, during BRAC rounds, base realignment and closure rounds, and uh, helping uh, make the case for Fort Drum and why it was so important to the U.S. military. I think, you know, that was certainly certainly one of the roles that we played. The other is I was at the American Legion post over on, uh, I believe it's Clinton Street, when the announcement was made in 1984. We stood toward the back of the room with the then president of the college, John Henderson, and the announcement was made that Fort Drum would be becoming home to the 10th Mountain Division. And we began to, at that point, you know, see the change that was coming. And of course, at that point in time, there was, there was a lot of discussion about, oh, how will this ever work? You know, we, uh, I don't know, is the North Country ready for this, et cetera? It, the amazing thing is that I think probably we were as, as successful as any community ever has been in extending a warm welcome uh, and in working with uh, the military community to make it successful for both military community and the larger community. So I think that a lot of our effort was spent, look at the schools and the programs the schools have put together. And now when you look at why do people like to come to Fort Drum, it's not for the snow particularly, okay? <laughs> but it is for such things as they'll say rated high, the schools, the quality of the schools here in the North Country. That's been a pretty consistent response. The the outdoor, out of doors, the opportunities for recreation, etc. It isn't just happenstance that any commanding general that I can remember consistently will get back to us with feedback of saying this is probably the most welcoming community in the U.S. military. And I don't think they are uh, either exaggerating or saying it because it would make us feel good. I think that the community can be proud that we've done, whether it's in delivering education or health care or just being good hosts to neighbors. And the fact that they're parts of our community, I think that's all been a strength and part of the success of the 10th Mountain Division presence here in the area. And FDRLO is one of the organizations, only one, but it's one that's done its part to try to ensure there was sufficient housing and uh, try to make certain that we didn't get caught up in a realignment and closure 
activity. So you see great outpourings periodically where there's an issue, great outpourings from the community uh, coming together to make the case to address whatever the threat may be. You both mentioned just education, history, how important those two particular items are to the quality of life of, in a community. Education is certainly a, a critical cog in inspiring our youth to give. What else do you think we can do as a community to encourage the next generation to give as you have? Well, definitely, as I said before, you set an example. You show them what needs to be done and how to do it. You've done the, the youth court, I think, has been a, a wonderful uh, example. Community Foundation's community Youth Philanthropy right. Council, yep. Yes. Yeah, I, I think philanthropy is like a lot of things. I think it's a learned activity. I, I don't know if at birth we're, you know, we, we want to say, well, how do I give back? I guess at birth we're pretty self-centered, aren't we, as young we sure are. as babies? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think that the more examples that one can provide, you know, I mean, we talked about the good fortune that we've had. Uh, we have been fortunate to be associated with a lot of organizations and efforts. The, we had, we most, well, I say most recently, but we were involved uh, with the Urban Missions Capital Campaign. And what a story that organization had to tell. And the point is, it hadn't been told all that extensively. And once it was, here's an organization that, uh, you know, a lot of times was, you know, certainly not flush with money. It was in a, a setting that was in real need of, of updating and repair. And once that story went out of what it does, not so much just what the need was, but what it does for the community. The response was, was overwhelmingly positive. That was a $2 million campaign yes, as well, correct? Yeah. One of the things we touched on earlier to bring back around too is the importance of sharing some of those values that each of you had with, with your children. Now you lost your daughter, Jennifer, to brain cancer in 2014, and she fought the disease for about five years. Yes. I would be interested to hear just how the loss of a child impacts the way you give to others. I think that, you know, that's probably the most difficult thing that anyone ever faces uh, in life. It is, but we became but, acutely conscious yeah. of how yeah. difficult life is for cancer patients. And we became aware when Jennifer visited us how difficult it was to receive chemotherapy and radiation here without the cancer center that they now have. And so we were enthusiastic about supporting the Walker Cancer Center. And uh, we do that with good conscience and best wishes for all the people who had to travel to Syracuse and Utica who no longer have to do that. We're reminded periodically of how vulnerable we really are and it probably magnifies this whole notion of empathy. Empathy becomes something that, yep, I think I really understand what that is. Uh, people were empathetic with us in our situation. John served on the hospice board for years and years and we truly recognize that organization and how vital it is to a community and we know that not all communities have a hospice, particularly a hospice house available to them and right. I think that makes us very willing to support hospice as we've done. Another good fortune that we've had is I've been able to serve as a trustee of a local organization here that you know we oftentimes don't think of an organization like a bank as being philanthropic but my role over the last decade with Watertown Savings Bank has driven home to me firsthand what an organization like that can do and which is significant uh, in terms of significant contributions to the good of the community and the life of the community. 
in following that thread, where do you feel philanthropy can make a meaningful impact in the North Country now and in its future? Well, well I've mentioned yeah. before, I'd like to see it easier to preserve old buildings because of our interest in historic preservation in Sackets. Yeah, I, I think probably the answer is, there's, you know, there's not one best way. I mean, there's so much need as we think about how do you create and 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 uh, a healthy, a healthy, thriving community. You know, everything from the health needs of the community to again, you go back and put front and center the educational needs of the community. But I think there's just a thousand ways that a person having read and learned a little more from just the course we're teaching now about philanthropy, you know, everything for the individual small act of kindness that one extends to someone who is who is suffering uh, is a form of philanthropy. You know, all the way to the kind of things that the Bill Gateses of the world do, that Andrew Carnegie did so many, uh, many years ago when, when he gave away 90% of his uh, wealth. So I think there's, a, you know, there's just a lot, of, a lot of opportunity, a lot of ways. You know, serving on boards of organizations that have a mission that one is comfortable with, you know, can be an immense contribution. Uh, time, time and talent, as they say, along with the dollars. That's all, to me, part of, of the ways that we recognize as humans we're interconnected. As Benjamin Franklin used to say, we're all in it together, you know, or else we're all out there on our own. And uh, that, that generally doesn't prove to be very effective. Well, John, you chose to create a course that you're starting to share now at Hay Memorial Library, kind of a class that you just touched on a minute ago, but talks a little bit about philanthropy, civic engagement, why that's important to your community. Can you share just some details about the course in general, but maybe the motivation for why you decided to do this? Well, one of the, let me uh, just point out that one of the things I've been fortunate about with a lot of good things that happen in life, in this case, uh, I'm working with the, the, the guy who really takes the lead on that course is a fellow by the name of Dr. Josh Canale from Jefferson Community College. And Connie Barone, uh, talking about partnerships, Connie Barone, who uh, is at the Battlefield State Park, she has, oh, I guess maybe this would be our fifth one, she usually uh, makes uh, an application to a New York State grant source. Uh, it used to be the New York State Council on Humanities. I think it's a different name at this point. Gets a little grant, which allows uh, the books for whatever course we're dealing with to be available free. There's no charge to the students in the class. And uh, we end up doing a program. We've done a program on World War One, a couple on the Civil War. And this latest one that we're doing now, and again, that I appreciate being able to sit in on and you know, hopefully make some valuable contribution, is one that looks at the whole notion of, it's called, the, we use a book called The Civically Engaged Reader. And what it does is it uh, talks about the various forms, the, the, the numerous forms that civic engagement can take. And of course, you know, one of those is the, what we think of as the kind of the, tr the traditional philanthropy, you know, where we give uh, all the world's great religions, you know, they, they all have in one way or another a, a theme of it's important 
to take care of those who are, in this case, less fortunate, is the reference. So the notion of almsgiving that I saw in India grows out of that tradition. But charity on a larger scale, if you will, would be what we would see from those who had done well in life as far as financially and were able to give back. And then more recently, looking at the work of organizations, it's the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller, Northern Yard Community Foundation, where they have tried to look at what are the issues in our community that we might be able to focus some attention on. Down to the, 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 the fourth area, as it's referred to, is looking at this whole notion of how do we promote efforts where or situations where the citizens of a community can come together and we'll talk with each other maybe with many differences but you know we've kind of lost the ability in our political arena to get people of different stripes to work together and uh, or at least maybe not as effectively as might like one theme right now we're seeing in some areas of the country is where everyday Americans, citizens, are coming together and saying, how can we solve the problem of, you name it, X, Y, or Z? And uh, that, too, I think is a form of serving that uh, is extremely important to our future. Well, your resume of giving belongs to me, kind of in the pantheon of generous donors who have believed in the North Country and made a genuine investment in the region's well-being. John and Mary Jo, thanks for your honest thoughts and reflections about your journey in philanthropy, and we hope others will feel inspired to be connected and follow the example that you've set. Well, thank you. Thank you for talking with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Northern New York Community Podcast. Remember, every interview is easy to access, whether it's online or on your mobile device. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or other podcast platforms when you search for the Northern New York Community Podcast. Listen and subscribe to the podcast today. We also have a website as well for the podcast. You can listen anytime to other conversations, which also feature interview highlights, transcripts, photo galleries, and much more. Just go to nnycpodcast.com. We were grateful to have John and Mary Jo Deans join us on this podcast, and thanks again for listening to this edition of the Northern New York Community Podcast. Northern New York Community Podcast. Stories from the heart of our community.